right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. We're super glad to have you with us. And of course, just uh, congrats to the families uh, who had the chance to do child dedication this morning. It's one of my uh, favorite things that we get to do as a church is to um, just watch the next generation and to watch them being raised in the Lord. That's just such a cool thing. And it's such a cool thing that we get to be part of that together as a church family. And, uh, and I am super thankful uh, that you're here as we are actually in the final week of a six-part series that we have been calling Powerless to Change, a Life Through the Spirit. And I do just want to say, like DJ mentioned uh, just a couple moments ago, if you're a guest with us, and so if it's your first time here at Grace, uh, maybe somebody invited you, or maybe you just decided to check us out for the first time, or maybe you're here for one of the child dedications, maybe someone who's in that family, I just want to say thank you so much for being our guest, and we hope that you feel welcome because you are welcome. If you're a guest who's joining us online, maybe you're catching us for the first time there, we just want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for for being with us. But like I said, this is actually the sixth week. So this is the final week in a conversation that we've been having. And so if you are just joining us, let me just see, before we jump into some new content, let me just see if I can quickly recap and maybe just kind of summarize what it is that we've been talking about uh, for the past few weeks in this series. So again, the, the title of the series is Powerless to Change, question mark. And the reason uh, we, we titled it this way is because the real question uh, that we are, are kind of asking, kind of the premise that we're dealing with is we're, we're asking the question, is change possible? Uh, is it change for us as people to, is it, is it possible for us as people to, to change, to experience the transformation that God desires? And here's what we said. We said that's actually a really important question because I think maybe for some of us, if not many of us, we've lived enough life to wonder whether or not real change is actually really possible. And what we've been saying in this series is that, yes, that the real change that God really desires is a real possibility, that it really is possible to change. However, what we said is, we said that a lot of times when we try to change or when we seek transformation, that a lot of times we look to the wrong source. And so in this series, we're saying that the Bible's going to show us that the power for transformation, the power to live the life that God wants for us and to be transformed in the way that God desires for us is actually through, you can see in the tagline, is actually through the Spirit. And so in other words, what we've been saying in this series is that the power for true transformation to occur, for us to live the life that God wants us to live, comes in and comes by and comes through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that if you're just joining us or you're just connecting in this series or if you're someone who's exploring Christianity or you're new to the Bible, I know that when I say that, when I say the Holy Spirit, for some of you, that seems really weird. You're like, that's a weird, this is, this is a weird thing. This is why I don't go to church. And this is why I haven't been in a church in a long time. And maybe it's because of that. And, and the truth is uh, that that's a little bit understandable uh, because the topic of the Holy Spirit is one that is very mysterious. Uh, the topic of the Holy Spirit is one, quite honestly, that has been very abused. It's often one that's oft, also very neglected. And, uh, and so there's a lot of confusion around it. And yet, the Bible, when you read the Bible, it's hard to ignore the teaching that you're going to see about the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, the main question that we've been processing through in this series is this question. So the whole series is really about this. It's how are we to understand, how are we to relate to, and how are we to interact with the Holy Spirit. So this whole series is about the Holy Spirit, and we're asking the question, how do we rightly understand the Holy Spirit? How do we relate to, how do we interact with, how do we cultivate a relationship with, is it possible 
to cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit? And if so, what does that look like and how do we do it? And so in a lot of ways, we've been kind of demystifying uh, this question here. And the way that we've been doing that, there's a lot of places you can go in the Bible uh, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, but we've actually been basing this series out of one primary passage. And the primary passage that we've been looking at is actually in Romans chapter eight. And so this whole series is built off of Romans eight. Romans eight is kind of home base for us. And so I'd love to just invite you right now, why don't you get your Bible out with me? And why don't we get back to Romans chapter eight. So grab a Bible if you would, or if you uh, have a Bible app on your phone, open that up. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can use the Bibles under the chairs. Page 916 is where you're going to find Romans chapter eight. If you don't own a Bible, if you flat out don't own one, you can take that home with you, and we'd love for you to take that, make that a gift from us to you. Okay, so Romans eight is where we're going to go. Now, as you're finding Romans eight, the reason that we're looking at this chapter is because it is all about the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, Romans chapter eight is all about life through and life by the Holy Spirit. And like I said, we've covered a lot. And so just kind of the high level overview, over the past five weeks in Romans eight, what we've learned is if we wanna rightly relate to the Holy Spirit, first off, we have to come to the Holy Spirit. We have to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. And so we said, according to scripture, the Holy, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a human, but a person. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is not just some abstract force the Holy Spirit is not just some vague, impersonal power. We said the Holy Spirit is personal, which means that the way that we approach the Holy Spirit is in a relationship, in a relationship. And so we talked about that in week one. Then in week two, we continued looking at Romans 8, and we said that the Holy Spirit, we discovered, is the one who gives life. And we said this is a major theme that you're going to see throughout the Bible. When you think about the Holy Spirit, you should always associate the Holy Spirit with the one who gives life. And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit is now the one who empowers the Christian life. And so the Bible is going to say that the power for transformation as God desires is going to be found in living by, in walking by, in being guided by the Holy Spirit. And then we talked about how the Holy Spirit is going to testify that we're God's children. One of the primary evidences of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is that he is going to testify to your identity. He's going to continue to affirm who you are. And then last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, let me just say, that is a high-level overview. If that intrigues you or that confuses you, I would really encourage you to go back. We spent a week talking about each one of those topics, and you can go back and listen to that on our website, our, website, our app, our podcast. We'd love for you to do that. But today, as we finish this series and as we finish Romans chapter 8, I want to look at one final aspect of the Holy Spirit that I think is very, very, very important uh, for us to get a hold of. And here's what we're going to look at today. Romans 8 is going to show us that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives confidence and the Holy Spirit gives assurance that we, that those who follow Jesus, are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so let me just say that again. The Holy Spirit, one of the things that we're going to see, how do we rightly understand, how do we rightly interact with the Holy Spirit? We have to understand that the Holy Spirit is going to give confidence and assurance that we are in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you are like, I don't understand what that means. So my hope is that by the end of today's talk that you'll know exactly what that means and you'll see why it's so significant and it's so important. And let me just say this, that in order for me to explain what I mean by this, what's on the screen, and what I believe Romans 8 is going to show us, I'm just going to tell you right from the very beginning, I'm going to need to take us on a little bit of a journey, okay? So I'm just going to ask you right from the beginning to just stick with me, okay? Just stick with me, because I think, I think that what we're going to talk about, that this that we see on the screen is such an important aspect of the Holy Spirit, that it is critical that we get a hold of this, that we get a hold of this. Okay, so where does the journey begin? 
Well, I think the best place to start is for us to read the last 11 verses in Romans chapter eight. So I'm gonna read the whole section, okay? 11 verses in Romans eight. We'll start in verse 28, Romans 8, 28. So let's pick it up there. Here's what it says. It says, and we know, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All right, real fast. That's actually where we ended last week. So we stopped there. And you might remember last week, we said that Romans 8 is sometimes called the greatest chapter in the Bible by many, many, many people. And we said, if that's, the tr- if that's true, if Romans 8 is the greatest chapter, Romans 8, 28 would be the greatest verse in the Bible. In fact, I think, I think every follower of Jesus ought to have that one committed to memory. But then it goes on, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Yeah, wow. I'm just saying, those 11 verses, I feel like we could just read those and then just pray and go home. And some of you are like, yes, please. That'd be great. And no, I have more to say. But but man, those are some pump you up, powerful, power-packed verses I think we see in this passage. And as much as I could say about the 11 verses that we read, which by the way, there is much to say about the 11 verses I just read, my hope is that you probably noticed that there is a consistent theme within those 11 verses. And what is it? What, are, what does those 11 verses all have in common? Well, I believe it's this. I think those 11 verses talk about confidence and assurance and security. And they talk about, I think when you look at it, certainty, certainty. So let, let me just give you a high-level recap of what we just saw. So Romans eight twenty eight. what did it say? God works for the good of those who love him. God works for the good of those who love him. What is that? Here's what that is. That's assurance. That's confidence. That is security. That whatever God allows and whatever God ordains in your life, that it's going to work to something good. That's what that is. Or how about this one? Those God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That's something like, those are some really big, crazy words. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you in part what that means is this. It means that the thing that God started, you can be confident and you can be assured that he is going to see that through to completion. He's going to finish what he started, what he promised he's going to deliver on. That's what that's 
telling us. Notice it says, if God is for us, he asks rhetorically, then who can be against us? And the answer, of course, is, well, uh, nobody. Nobody. If God is for you, what is that? Confidence, assurance, security. How about this one? If God gave us Jesus, if he graciously gave us his son, don't you think he's also going to give us everything else? And again, the answer is uh, yes. In fact, he will. You can have confidence, and you can have assurance, and you can have certainty about that. Who's going to bring any charge against us? Rhetorically, the answer is no one. Who condemns us? The answer is no one. And then he goes on to say, we're more than conquerors, and he says that there is nothing in all creation that's going to be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what is all that? It's confidence, it's assurance, it's security, it is certainty. That's what you see here. Now, let me just say that as breathtaking as these concepts are, and they are absolutely breathtaking, they are breathtaking, yet at the same time, I think that if we're being very honest, some of the things on this screen bring up some important issues and questions that quite honestly, many people, and honestly, many people who are way smarter than me, have debated over and have puzzled about and have questioned for the last 2,000 years. In fact, if you're a person who's been around the church, like maybe you grew up in the church or you grew up around the church, my guess is that some of the things that you see on this screen, you probably know, have been the source of great, of great questions and of great you know, uh, debate within uh, all of Christendom. And so, for example, when you see things like uh, God uh, foreknew, and when you see things like God predestined, and when it says things like God predestined and called and justified and glorified, when it talks about the idea that God calls or predestines or he foreknows, that, that causes, I think, a, a whole bunch of different questions to come up. So for example, uh, some of the questions that have risen over the past 2,000 years are things like this. So is this saying that we don't have any choice? Is that what this is saying? So if it's saying that we are predestined or predetermined or that we are chosen, does that mean that there's some people who are predestined to know Jesus? And does that mean that there's some people who are, or if I can put it another way, does this mean that we're robots? Is that it? Like, does predestined mean that we are pre-programmed? That before we were even born, the outcome was already determined for us? And if that's the case, I think it makes us ask another question, which, well, if that's, if that's true, does that mean that there are other people? So if there's some who are predestined to know Christ, and according to the scripture, that gain access into eternity, does that mean that there's other people who are predestined not to? Is that what that's saying? Maybe it asks us questions like this. If that's the case, if we don't have any choice, then why does faith even matter at all? Why would God emphasize things like faith or belief? If God wants us to make a decision, why would he do that if that decision is an illusion? It seems weird to us. I think it causes uh, people to ask the question, can't, can't, is it possible, can you have true love if there's no choice? Right? If there's no choice, is it actually love? Can, can it actually be love? And then I think the big question, quite honestly, that this passage has caused many people to ask is can a Christian lose their salvation? Can, can a follower, in other words, can a follower of Jesus unfollow Jesus? Can a person who is a, who is a follower of Christ, who is a Christian, um, renege on that? Right? All these verses, you just saw them, they're about confidence and they're about assurance and they're about certainty. And it makes us ask the question, the questions like this, questions like this. Now, like I said, these are issues and these are questions that have been debated over and have been puzzled over throughout all of Christendom, all of Christendom. And I think, I believe, these are actually really important questions. 
I think they're actually really important and they're worth talking about and they're worth thinking through. And I think that it's worth digging into the Bible to try to find some answers to questions like this. And I just want to tell you, um, I think this might be helpful. Um, I, I am fully aware that in the limited amount of time that we have with the limited sermon and with my limited understanding on these things, there's no way we're going to solve the questions that are on the screen. But I think they're important questions to, to ask. But here's what I'm hoping that you'll see today. What I'm hoping that you'll see is I think that it is possible that in focusing on these questions, which are great questions, by the way, I think it's possible that in focusing on these questions, we might be missing the forest for the trees. I think we might be missing it. What do I mean by that? I think it's possible to miss what Romans 8 is primarily communicating in this passage. And you're like, well, what is that? Okay, well, I think maybe the best way for me to explain it, I want you to notice you got Romans 8 in front of you, I want you to look with me at the bookends of Romans 8. Look at the first verse and look at the, the last verse with me. Look at verse 1 and verse, look, look at verse 39. And I want you to notice how it begins. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> By the way, greatest way to start a chapter. I love that verse. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how does it end? Do you notice the last verse in Romans 8? Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice, how does Romans 8 start? With no condemnation. How does Romans 8 end? No separation. And what's in between? Everything that we've studied over the past few weeks. Romans 8 is an awesome sandwich. And at the front end is no condemnation. And at the back end is no separation. And then you have everything in between. But here's what I want you to notice. And this is a detail a little detail that I think can easily be missed. Do you notice when you look at these verses, when you look at these two, where these confidences are located? So, so in other words, when you look at these verses, do you, know, do, you, do you see where no condemnation and where no separation is found? Do you see it? Do you see where it's located? And my guess is, I mean, you could be right past it, but do you notice there's no condemnation where? Uh, in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it's going to say that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's where? Where is that located? It's located in Christ Jesus. I'm just telling you, I think this is a deeply, deeply significant little detail. Deeply, deeply significant. If you've ever read through the New Testament, and I know that, uh, I know that not, not everyone in here is like an avid Bible reader, but if you ever have read through the New Testament, my guess is that you probably noticed, it, it becomes apparent very quickly, that one of the most used phrases that you're going to see throughout the New Testament is this statement, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him. It shows up all over the place. In fact, I, um, John Stott, I love the way he put it. He's a very famous uh, theologian and Bible commentator. He points this out. He says, the commonest description, I didn't know that was a word, uh, the, the commonest or the most common description in the, in the scriptures of a follower of Jesus is that he or she is a person in Christ. The expression in Christ, in the Lord, and in him occurs 164 times in the letters of Paul alone. There's more than just the letters of Paul, by the way, in the New Testament. It's, an indispens it's indispensable to an understanding of the New Testament. He goes on later, and he says this. He says the word Christian, on the other hand, only appears three times in the Bible. Do you want to know what the most common designation that's used to describe a person who follows Jesus in Scripture? It's not Christian. Christian only shows up three times. It's this. It's that those who follow Jesus are in 
Christ. They are in Christ. 164 times in Paul's writings alone, the Bible is going to describe people who follow Jesus this way. We are in Christ. Now, here's the thing. I think the reason that sometimes we read right past that and don't think twice about it is because it seems really bizarre to us. What does that even mean, right? That's such a vague and odd concept to say that somebody is in somebody else. They're in Christ. What does that even mean? And so I want to try to explain this to you today, and I'm just going to admit it to you. I'm going to explain this in overly simplistic and um, more than definitely an imperfect way, but I think maybe it'll be, be helpful for us. So, so um, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, and this is going to sound so bizarre to you, but I've been thinking about this for probably a little over a year now, is I've been thinking about how when I read through the Bible, it seems like God is like really into, he's really into boxes, all right? So like, like boxes. God, God seems to like boxes a lot when I read the Bible. Some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? As I'm reading through scripture, I, am, I marvel at how time and time again, when God describes salvation, when he describes the means of, his, of saving, how often he uses the imagery and he uses the illustration of a box or a container. Now, I told you I'm going to take you on a little journey. And so I think one of the places where you first see this imagery is actually when you look all the way back into the Old Testament. And so some of you might remember uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, even if you're not a Bible reader, you're probably familiar with it, is the story of Noah, uh, Noah's Ark. And of course, if you're not familiar with that story, uh, basically there's a worldwide flood and all of creation is destroyed in the flood. But the Bible says that Noah and those who were with him were saved. They were safe. And why was that? Well, it's because they were in the ark. It's because they were in an ark. And what's interesting is when you read that story, when you read the story of Noah, and that's in Genesis 6 and 7, the Bible actually tells us an important little detail before the flood happens. Let me show it to you. This is, this is uh, Genesis chapter 6. The Bible says that the Lord looked at, looked at the earth and he saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, I think that this is a, is a really important and a very sobering verse, because what does it tell us? It tells us that God, God looks down at creation, and he sees that human depravity is at such a high level, that human evil and human wickedness is at such a strong point, that basically every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. It was completely past the point of return. And so this grieved God's heart. It grieved him. And because of this, the Bible says that the flood came. And the flood, of course, destroys all things and all of creation except for Noah and his family. Now, why were Noah and his family and those with him saved? It's because they were in, in the ark. Now, here's what I think is so interesting. The word ark is such a weird word to us. I don't think we use the word ark anywhere else. But do you know what the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for ark is actually this word right here. This is what it is. And it's pronounced teba, teba. And do you know what teba literally means in the Hebrew language? You probably guessed it. It means box. That's what it is. And it's a very simple word, and it just means box. So God said, I want you to build a box, and I want you to get into the box. And the way that you're going to be saved from the flood is, and if you think about it, that's really what a boat, a boat is just kind of like a box. It's just a container, right? It's just something that can contain something. And so God says, I want you to get into the box. And look what the Bible says in, in Genesis 7. It says, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out because of the flood. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him, notice, in 
They were in the ark. So what's going on here? All right, so I think, I think what you see in scripture is this, is that everything that was in the ark, everything that was in the box was saved. Everything in the box was rescued. Or maybe you could think about it this way. Everything that was in the box, there was no condemnation for that which was in the box. Or maybe you could put it this way. That which was in the box was predetermined by God that it would be rescued and saved into a new creation. So you see this picture here in Genesis. And the Bible is going to tell us that. Now, why was it that Noah and his family were saved in the flood? Was it because they were stronger than everyone else? Was it because they were better swimmers than anyone else and they could outswim their way out of the flood? Was it because they were perfect people? And by the way, the answer to those are no. In fact, if you, if you want to see that Noah and his family were imperfect people, you just need to read Genesis 7 and 8 and 9, and you'll see that that's the case. Just, I mean, like terribly imperfect people. Like, go read it for yourself, and, but make sure you're 13 or over when you do. It's like they are, they are some messed up dysfunctional people. And so why were they saved? And here's the answer. It's because they were in the ark. It's because they were in the box. And how did they enter into the, how did they get in the box? Well, actually, the Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us how they got in. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith. It was by faith. Noah was told about what was to come. He couldn't see it. He was told about what was to come, and he believed God. He believed him. And he built an ark by faith, and then got into it and was saved by it. All right, so the Bible's going to tell us that. That's box number one. That's box number one. Let me give you another one real quick. The next one I want, you, I want you to see is actually in Exodus chapter two. So later on in the Old Testament, so it's Genesis, then Exodus, the Bible tells us that there's another, uh, there's another person who's born. His name is Moses. You've probably heard of him. And the Bible says when Moses is born, he is born into a very turbulent time. He is born into a situation where the Israelites are in Egyptian captivity. And the Bible tells us that there was a dictator leader named Pharaoh who issued a decree to basically kill all the newborn children who were born of the Israelites. Moses was born into this time. And so when Moses was born, his mom tried to keep him safe. She did it for three months, but then after that, she couldn't keep it a secret anymore. She couldn't keep him quiet. And so the Bible says this in Exodus chapter two. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket now, interestingly, some of you will have footnotes in your Bible if you read this, and the footnote will say, or ark. They'll say ark. What's the word there? It's the word teba, which means a box. So she put him in a papyrus box container, coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child and put it in the reeds in the bank of the Nile. And ultimately, Moses was saved. So Moses was placed, he was placed in a box, and he was saved from this, this tyrannical leader who was killing the newborn children. All right, I'm going to give you one more, just, just one more to make my point. If you f- fast forward a little bit further in the Old Testament, God actually commands his people to build a box. In fact, in Exodus 25, it's going to say this. It's going to say, God told his people, have them make an ark or a teba or a box of Achaia wood. And then he goes on to give the dimensions of this box. Now, this is maybe one of the most famous boxes in all of the Bible. And I think one of the reasons it's so famous is because of that Indiana Jones movie. If you guys remember that one, it's, uh, it's uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what it is. And it's basically the lost box. And what is that box? Well, without getting into all the details, it actually is something called the Ark of the Covenant. And covenant is a real interesting word that just simply means promise. And so it, it literally was a promise box. 
That's what it was. It was a promise box. Sometimes it was called the Ark of Testimony. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of it uh, for time's sake, but I do want to mention to you, we actually, if you're interested at all, we actually preached an entire sermon on the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a series called You Are Here, and there was a week called We Destroy. And in that week, we talk all about the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, the Box of Promise. But if I could summarize for you what this is all about, Here's a picture. This is an artist rendition of what the ark would have looked like. And basically, it was a box. You can see it's a box. It's a very elaborate, very nice box. But it was a box that testified to the rebellious nature of God's people, the Israelites. So the articles that were in this box were testifying of the rebellious nature of the people of God. And yet, at the same time, the box itself was a container that signified how those rebellious individuals were secure in the covenant. They were secure in the promise. Those who were in the box basically were the ones who were in the promise. And because they were in the promise, they were safe and they were covered. That's what you're going to see in that. Now, I want you to keep all that in your mind. I know that might sound a little bit confusing. But when you come into the New Testament, what's so interesting is when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, he begins talking about a new covenant, He starts talking about a new promise. And he starts talking about this is a covenant that is through his blood, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is a covenant that is entered in by faith, is entered in by faith. And so interestingly, the most common term that's used to refer to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, in his death and his burial and his resurrection, is that they are now in Christ. They are in Christ. Christ, in Christ, over and over again, in Christ. And when a person is in Christ, what's true about them? What's true about them? Well, we looked at a couple already. What's true about them is there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What else is true? Uh, There's no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What else is true about those who are in Christ? Well, if you wanted to, we could literally give you hundreds of things that are true about those who are in Christ, because the Bible gives us hundreds of things that are true about those who are in Christ. But I'm not going to do that. In fact, what I want to do, just to crystallize my point, is I just want to show you one passage, one passage that I think really just brings it home. I want you to look at Ephesians 1 with me. Ephesians 1 is very similar to Romans 8. And as we look at Ephesians 1, I just want you to count with me, just look with me, at the amount of times that it talks about what is available and what is true for those who are in Christ. All right, so I want you to notice this. So Ephesians 1, starting off in verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Where? In Christ. In Christ. For he chose us. Where? In him. I think this is very interesting. Notice the Bible doesn't say we were chosen by him. It says we were chosen in him. Okay, that's really interesting. Before the creation of the world all right, that's nuts, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Look at this. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship. How did he do that? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Notice this. In him, in Jesus, what is there? Redemption, through his blood. What's in Christ? The forgiveness of sins is in here in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in 
Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, notice this. In Christ, here it is again, in him, you were chosen. And you were predestined. This is interesting. You were predestined in him. It doesn't say by him. It says in him. And it goes on according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, that is a mouthful. There's a lot of very, very big ideas that are in that passage. But just to review, what did Ephesians 1 just tell us about what is true for those who are in Christ? Well, here's what it's gonna say. It's gonna say, in Christ is every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is located here. It's going to say, in Christ is adoption to sonship. That's in here. In Christ is grace. In Christ is redemption through his blood. In Christ is the forgiveness of sins. In Christ we're chosen. And in Christ we are predestined in conformity to his will. So if I'm reading this right, if I'm reading this right, I'm pretty sure that the question is not, the question is not, do you have every spiritual blessing? I'm pretty sure that the question is not, do you have God's grace in your life? I'm pretty sure the question is not, are you forgiven of your sins? And I'm pretty sure the question is not, are you predestined? I'm pretty sure that's not the question. If I'm reading this right, I think that the question that Ephesians 1 is forcing us to ask is this, are you in Christ? Because if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, then yes to all of this. This is all true of you if you are in Christ. I'll tell you, when I was reading this passage, it makes me wonder stuff like this. And I'm not sure, but it makes me wonder stuff like this. Maybe it's not that we're predestined. Maybe it's that he's predestined, and when we're in him, we are also predestined because of that. So, so the question is, and we could talk about all this, but the question is this. You might be saying, okay, I think I get what you're saying. I think I understand what you're talking about there. But what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? And what is the point that you're trying to make? What exactly is your point? And like I told you, I have to take you on a journey to get here. But here is the point that I'm trying to make, is that the Holy Spirit, what we're going to see now, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives confidence and assurance that we are in Christ Jesus. So what does the Holy Spirit do? One of the ways that we are to understand the Holy Spirit and one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit is he's going to give us confidence and assurance that we are in Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us this. Look again with me. This is back to Ephesians 1. And you were also included in Christ. How did that happen? when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then you believed. And when that happened, you were marked in him. And look what the Bible says. And you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what's that talking about? The Bible says that when a person embraces Christ, they're in Christ, they're in him. And one of the things that the spirit of God is going to do and the Spirit is going to seal you and guarantee and give you assurance and confidence that you are in him. Now, the word seal is an interesting word to us. For some of us, we're like, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to seal something? And uh, this actually was a very significant concept in the first century. So back in the first century, when a king or a very prestigious leader, whenever, when they wanted to make an edict or they wanted to pass a law or something like that, one of the things that they would do is they would write out their edict, they would roll it up on a scroll, they would put wax or they would put clay on that scroll and then they would take their signet ring. They would have a ring that had a special image on it and they would, they would stamp that onto the seal. 
And that would be the way. And basically what that did was it was, it was a way of authenticating. It was a way of finalizing. It was a way of saying, this is legit, and it cannot be revoked. That's what it was. In fact, I think it's kind of cool. We actually have an example of this happening in the Old Testament. I just want to show you this. This is in Esther 8. The Bible's talking about a guy named King Xerxes. And it says, now write another decree in the king's name, King Xerxes, on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For, now here's the, here's the, the point, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Here's the point. What does it mean when something is sealed? It means it can't be revoked. It means that it's signed, sealed, delivered. It means it's confident. It means it's done. It means it can't be taken back. That's what it means when something is sealed. So when Ephesians says, when you put your faith in Christ, you are found in him and the Holy Spirit seals that. What that means is that can't be revoked. What that means is it's signed, sealed, delivered. It is legitimized in that And this is what he's saying here in this passage. In fact, I want to show you another passage, just another one, that says almost exactly the same thing. Notice how similar this is. 2 Corinthians 1. For no matter how many promises God has made, they're all yes. Where? In Christ. All the promises are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He appointed us and he set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, man, I'm just telling you, I know that these passages seem complicated and confusing because they're talking about something that is mystical. They're talking about something that is so true and is so real and is so spiritual, but it's something we can't see. And it's telling us about this confidence and assurance that we have in our position in Christ. And so for me, I'm kind of a visual person. And so this is the best way that I can think of This is imperfect, but this is how I, if I'm reading this right, here's what I think this means. All right, I want you just to imagine with me for a minute. Just imagine that this box represents you. Okay, so this box is you. I apologize for the metaphor. I don't think any of you look like a box. All right, but let's just say this box is you. All right, so that's you. The Bible is going to say that when you place your faith in Christ, that when you respond to the gospel and believe, The Bible says that there are some realities that happen in that moment. And one of the realities the Bible says, notice this, is the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. So let's just say this little box represents the Holy Spirit. All right, so the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, when you embrace Christ by the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. The Holy Spirit is now in you. And what does the Holy Spirit do when he's in you? Well, everything we've talked about over the past weeks. The Spirit is going to testify that you're God's children. The Spirit is going to help you in your weakness. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you and lead you. You're going to walk by. You're going to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be inside of you. But here's what the Bible's going to say. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in you, and you are, notice, you are in Christ. So the Bible's going to say the Spirit is in you, and you are in Christ. I think part of the reason why the Spirit is in you is because the Spirit is in Christ, and because you're in Christ, that means the Spirit is in you. I think. I don't know how this works. But the Spirit is in you. You are in Christ, is what the Bible says. Now check this out. So now the Holy Spirit's in you, and you are in Christ. And the Bible says, and then what happens is Holy Spirit round two comes around, 
and he seals you. So I brought this duct tape, all right? So this is my Holy Spirit sealing duct tape that I bought from the store, all right? So let's just say I put this on here, and I seal this. And here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to keep you secure in here. And that means that no height, that means no depth, that means that no angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all creation, not even an angry UPS worker, is going to be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's going to keep us secure. And so the Spirit is in us, and we are in Christ. And the Bible says that the Spirit seals us in Christ. And then, man, if you want to get technical about it, Colossians 3 is going to say that our life is hidden in Christ, in God, in the Father. If I had a bigger box, I would put this in here. What's the point? Here's the point. I'm just saying that if you're in Christ, you're pretty darn secure. You are pretty safe. And I think what that means is it means that there is nothing in all creation that's going to separate you and is going to tear you apart from the love that is found where? In Christ Jesus. You guys, I think the point is this. I think the point point is that the Holy Spirit is going to give us confidence and he's going to give us assurance that we are in Christ. It's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And so for those who are in Christ, what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, I think what it means is for those in Christ, if you're in Christ, here's what you can be, here's what you can be sure of. There's no separation. There's no separation. Exactly what he says in Romans 8. There's nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or just to get very, very practical, how about this? Uh, like, like, what do you mean secure? What do you mean no separation? What I mean is like, Uh, Like, no matter what level of cancer, what I mean is, like, no matter what the diagnosis is, what I mean is, no matter what someone is doing to you or trying to do to you, what I mean is, no matter what's happening at your job, no matter what's happening in our economy, no matter what's happening in the White House, no matter what is happening with the pandemic, there's nothing and I mean nothing that is going to tear you away from the security that's yours in Christ. We are so secure. There's no separation. Here's what I think it means. It means there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. You guys, this is one of my favorite things about this passage. It tells us that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And I'll tell you, I love the language. It's very, very, this is very strong and very important language. Do you notice he doesn't say, those who are in Christ are not condemned? He doesn't say that. He says, no, there's no condemnation. In other words, it doesn't exist for you. If you are in Christ, condemnation does not exist for you. It doesn't exist for you. Here's why I think that's important. I think a lot of Christians can fall, and myself included, can fall under this belief that yes, there's forgiveness in Christ, but that we can come in and out of that state of forgiveness. That yes, I'm forgiven by Christ until I mess up. And then when I mess up, I have to somehow earn God's forgiveness again. And so I have to pray a certain amount of prayers or I have to make sure a certain amount of time elapses and I have to be well-behaved for a certain period of time and then I'll come back to a place of forgiveness. But if that was the case, that would mean that we move in and out of condemnation. And here he says, no, if you're in Christ, you know what that means? Zero condemnation. You have none. There is none of it for you. That is not. And here's why that's so awesome. It means, what it means is God, no matter what he introduces into your life, is not doing it for punitive reasons. All of your sins have been paid for in Christ. There is no condemnation for you 
in Christ Jesus. That means there's the freedom. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. I love the way that one commentator put it. He said it this way. His name is Rankin Wilborn. God doesn't love you to the degree that you're like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you're in Christ. And that's always 100% if you've placed your faith in him. So there's no condemnation. And then lastly, I think what this means is if you're in Christ, all things are gonna work together for your good. This is exactly what we looked at last week. What does it say in Romans 8, 28? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what we can know. Here's what we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you are in Christ, the destination that he has predetermined that you are going to arrive at is good. He's taking you somewhere good. I think, I think one of the problems with this verse, though, is that the word good is a vague word. Let's just be honest. Right? We, live in a, we live in a relativistic society, and so who determines good? What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. So in this passage, when it says all things are going to work for good, who's determining what's good? And of course, the answer is God. God is the one who's determining what's good. So what does he mean by that? What is his definition of good? Because I'll be honest with you, sometimes my definition of good is very different than his definition of good. How does he define good? Well, thank God he gave us the next verse because the next verse, he gives us the very clear definition of the destination that he is trying to take us to, that we are guaranteed to arrive at if we are in Christ Jesus. And what is it? Here it is. For those God foreknew, he predestined, he has predetermined that they are going to arrive where? To be conformed to the image of his son. What's that mean? It means that if you're in Christ, the place that God wants to take you is he wants to take you to a good place. And what is that place? It's a place where you look like Jesus. It's a place where your character looks like Christ, where you act like, you think like, you're joyful like, you're kind like, you're patient like Jesus. And I think what that means is, for some of us, when we, when we see that God's gonna work things for good, we think that means that God's gonna give us only pleasant circumstances. That's what good means. That's not God's definition of good. God's definition of good is this. He will introduce things into your life, not because he's punishing you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he's gonna introduce things in your life because character transformation happens sometimes on the far side of suffering. But here is the incredible assurance that you and I can have. No matter what God is putting in your life right now, if you are in Christ, he is not gonna waste a, not a square inch of the suffering and the pain that you're going through, but he's going to use it to achieve the likeness of his son. He wants to make you more like Jesus. And what that means is, is that you can trust him. And it means that you can lean into him and not run away from him in the midst of those times. So all these things are there for those who are in Christ. So let me end by saying this. I know that there's many of us who are here today who are followers of Jesus. We would say that we are in Christ Jesus. This is a confident assurance we have. But I also know there's probably some of you here today and maybe you're someone who's watching online or something like that and you're investigating Jesus. Maybe if I asked you, are you a Christian? Are you in Christ? You would say no or you would say, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. And if that's the case, man, we say this all the time. I'm so thankful that you would let us be part of that investigation. But the question you might be asking yourself is this. How does one become in Christ? How does one get in here? How does one find this? And I think, I don't understand how all of it works, but I think the Bible tells us, and let me show you, Ephesians 1. And you were included in Christ. How did that happen? How did you become included in Christ? Well, here it says it. 
you heard the message of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. And some of you are like, what is that? What is the gospel of truth? What is that talking about? Well, that's actually what I've been talking to you about for the past 40 minutes. It's the promise of God, his death, his burial, and resurrection through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And it says, you heard the message of truth, and then what do you do? You believed it. You believed it. What happened when that happened? You were marked in him with the seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And so the Bible says that it's in that interaction, when you respond to that, that then you're in Christ. And, and like I said, I'm not sure how it all works, but can I tell you what I believe? Here's what I believe. I believe that if you're in this room and you're investigating Jesus and you've never made a decision to believe in Christ, I believe that if that's you or if you're a person who's watching online and somehow you got this link and you're hearing this message or maybe you're listening to this message right now and it's 10 years from the moment that I preached it, I have no idea, right? So if maybe you stumbled on the website Hello, future person who's listening to this, wherever you might be. I'm looking at the ceiling, by the way, as if you're up there. I don't know where you are. But I, I believe that if, you hear, if you're hearing this message, here, here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe this. I believe God is calling you. I believe he is. And I believe that when you hear the message of truth and when you believe it and you place your faith in it, when you accept that invitation, and I don't know how it works. I don't know if, if he chose you or you chose him. I, I know for me, I remember when I heard the gospel when I was 17 years old, it sure felt like I had a choice. It felt like there was some, I felt like, I remember I heard the gospel and I remember thinking to myself, I don't even know how this is true. I just know this is true. And I think that that was God. But I remember feeling like I had a decision in that point. And am I, am I either going to accept this by faith and get in Christ or am I going to walk away and continue living my life the way I want to? And for some of you, I just want to present to you that I think that you have that lying before you now. And I would encourage you, don't put this on the back burner. Come to Christ. Put your faith in him and be found in him. This is something he wants for you. I'm ask the band to come up. And as they do, um, I'll just say this last thing and pray. Say God's in the boxes. So interesting. In Revelation 21, God gives us a picture of heaven. And what's so fascinating is in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible tells us, it actually gives us the dimensions. It gives us the blueprint of what's called the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. It gives us the dimensions. And I don't know why the Bible does that, but it gives us very specific dimensions of what heaven is gonna look like. And do you know what shape heaven is in? You know, can you guess? It's a massive box. It's a gigantic box. And what is that communicating? Well, I'm not entirely sure all that it's communicating, but I think one of the things it's telling us is that those who are in Christ are destined for a new creation. I think what it's telling us is it's not because we earned it, and it's not because we climbed a ladder of religion to achieve it. It's when we place our faith in Christ and we enter in through the promise. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I want to say thank you for, for this invitation that you have given us to be in you that everything that's true about you somehow mystically and somehow mysteriously becomes true of those of us who place our faith in you. And so God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to rejoice in that truth. As we sing, I pray that your Holy Spirit would testify and affirm and give confidence of the security that's found in you. And I pray for the person who's investigating you. If you're revealing yourself to them now, I pray that they would respond in faith. They would respond in faith to the promises that are in front of them. So God, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.